Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Hiya, welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and I'm coming to you from the lands of the Wajak people of Bulu, Perth, and I pay respect to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. The story of Julie Peters is explored in the documentary The Accidental Archivist, which is screening at the upcoming Queer Screen Mardi Gras Film Festival in Sydney on Monday, February 20th, alongside the great short Trans Glamour, which is about DJ Victoria Anthony. In The Accidental Archivist, Julie tells her story of how her extensive collection of trans-related media came into existence prior to her story of transitioning while working at the ABC in the 1990s. In the following interview, Julie talks about the years of working at the ABC, the way that change takes place in workplaces, as well as about her live show at the Midsummer Festival, Mutton is the New Lamb, between the 3rd of February and the 12th of February. Links for both shows are available in the show notes, and I highly recommend trying to head along to see either The Accidental Archivist or Julie's live show at Midsummer Festival if you can. The Accidental Archivist is a wonderful documentary that I highly recommend seeking out as it details how transgender stories were captured in popular culture, news and media and beyond in the 60s, 70s and 80s and how that also influences how Julie saw herself on screen. I highly recommend it again. It's it's really wonderful and I'm really grateful for Julie's time in being able to discuss her life and her work as depicted in The Accidental Archivist. To listen to further episodes of The Curb podcast or to read reviews or interviews, head over to thecurb.com.au. For now, here is Julie Peters talking about The Accidental Archivist. told me I'm a hoarder. Turns out I'm an archivist. Right from, from my teens, I was looking for trans reference absolutely everywhere. Whenever I saw anything which was cross-dressing or queer, I was really observant. Any magazine or newspaper that had an article, I'd buy it and cut it out. I've collected images, references, and I've kept them, put them in an archive. An archive of, of trans history is beautiful and so important. Quite honestly, trans people are fabulous. We deserve to be celebrated. It is quite possible that this is the most comprehensive archive of trans history in Australia. Articles, magazine articles, newspaper articles, books, movies, all this became my obsession in trying to figure out who I was. Thank you so much for your time, Julie. I appreciate it. I'm really pleased. Yeah, you're, um, you're doing this. I guess part of my, my, I guess my politics is to try and demythologise trans. So, you know, the, the fact that um, you know, Compass did, a, did an episode and a, a, a part of me is really quite amazed that, you know, an ABC religion and ethics program is, has got into Mardi Gras. Yeah, it's it's quite impressive, isn't it? What does that mean for you? Have your story not only part of the Mardi Gras Film Festival, but also part of Compass? Like, it's it's an institution. 
Oh, yeah, totally. And interestingly, I guess I see it more personally in that the director, uh, producer, you know, worked at the ABC in 1990 when I transitioned. And she, oh, so okay. part of that is, in a way, closure for us as well as individuals. Um, I mean, she, she left and went, did lots of other things and then came back. She was, you know, she was a, um, I think the, first, the last time I actually worked with her in that role was when I was lighting Das Kapital and, and she, was, she was doing staging on Das Kapital. It's almost like time collapses in a way, doesn't it? Because, you know, yeah, you've, yeah. Like, you've been part of the ABC for, for a long time. And I'm curious for you, obviously that's a, a huge amount of work that you've done and uh, worked with a lot of great people as well. But I'm curious for you if you can reflect on those years and if there are any memorable moments that stand out for you over the decades of, of working at the ABC. Um, well, I've been at the ABC since 1971, so that's seems crazy 51 years so television was still black and white when i started i definitely remember my first day it was a kamal show i walked into studio 31 and there was like a 60-piece orchestra and kamal standing out the front singing i went wow this is amazing just really small big yeah small kid with big eyes going wow that first week i remember quite dramatically we did you know, a week's worth of Bellbird and adventure island so you know that was our basically six days of the studio, two days of Kamal, two of Bellbird and two Adventure Island. And and so it, it just seemed absolutely amazing. I was a uni dropout at that point, by the way. I, I had to, I just wasn't really coping at uni. Um, and that was a lot to do with the culture. I eventually did go back, being, being slightly crazy. My first year at uni, I did electrical engineering. And, you know, the subject wasn't a problem. But the culture was, I really couldn't cope with the misogynist and homophobic culture in engineering at that time. The way I remember it, I did engineering because it seemed to me that if you're in the humanities, you have to give opinions and express yourself. And I was really scared of letting people know who the real me was. And I thought as an engineer, I could hide the real me totally. Did the, the ABC, obviously over the time that you've, you've worked there, in the 90s it gave you the the freedom the space to be able to be who you are basically i'm curious if you can talk about the change in a workplace it doesn't happen in isolation you know and and oh. things don't happen in isolation there were of course as shown in in the uh the compass show that you know there were some horrible things said to you about your transition and i'm curious can you talk about the process of changing a workplace from the inside how do you how do you alongside your colleagues manage to create a supportive place to allow people like you to be open about who you are your identity or well, cultural cultural change within organizations happens partly because cultural change is happening to society at large but, but it can also happen because of particular individuals in, in, in the organization I, I remember when i transitioned in 1990 um, one of the managers was, um, you know, he was, he gave me a really difficult time in terms of questioning. But once he realised I'd, I'd, I'd worked through most of the issues, he said, "If anybody gives you, gives you problems, Julie, um, I, they'll have to answer to me." And then, you know, six weeks later, he gave me an award for courage at the Christmas party, which I thought, "Wow!" See, he had a big influence on cultural change in that particularly in that first couple of months, a lot, awful lot of the straight men in the place were really having trouble with my change. And you've got to remember that, you know, I was 32 years cuter than I am now. So, you know, it's um, so, so that it, it um, 
yeah, you can see why they had stress. It, anyway, when he gave that award for courage, I glanced around. We, we happened to do it in, in the big TV studio. Uh, we, it was a Christmas party. At a glance, I could see that the people who were stressed with me changing weren't clapping. But when they realized that 70% you know, of the room was clapping, they started to clap as well. And I, th I think what it did was it made them realize that they were in the minority, whereas up until that point, a lot of them had, were just talking amongst themselves and thought that they were in the, had the, minor, the majority view. So there's things like that, which, you know, that was Ross Watson, who was the manager of um, basically production operations in Victoria. And you know, uh, there were certainly a lot of people who were really stressed about my change. But, but in a way, one of the reasons I didn't do it until 1990, because I really wanted to do it when I was a three-year-old, was that I didn't think that I could cope with the way the culture of the world was at that time. Like I couldn't do it in the 60s for a certain groups of reasons. And even though I was at, I was at the ABC in the 70s, I didn't believe the ABC would be able to cope in the 1970s, nor nor the 80s. In the 70s, there were a lot of out gay men. They were mostly theater, people who'd come from theatre. They were the actors, producers, and yeah, they had an arts degree in, in theatre or something. And and they were they were often the producers in the 70s. And, and but the crew was still mostly you know, very, very white and and cis and and homophobic, but but they tolerated the creatives being homosexual. And I remember being told at a party around about that time in the 70s that there are three types of queens in Melbourne. There were Maya queens, Qantas queens and ABC queens. And I just thought that was a such a cliche, I guess. But it was sort of, sort of true <laughs> as well. But in the 80s, there were far less out gay men. And partly that was because I think of AIDS and um, a lot of them were far more stressed. Um, a few people passed away, people I knew from, from that era. And I don't think, I didn't, I personally didn't meet an out lesbian until about um, late 80s, maybe early 90s. And the, and the first out trans person I met was me. That's, that's a lot of courage. And I'm curious for you, like the, the word courage comes with a lot of current, you know, connotations. And I know for some people, like I, I live with a disability and I've, you know, people said, oh, you know, you have courage for doing whatever you're doing and stuff like that. And I kind of resent the word courage in some ways, but I'm curious how you engage with the word courage. How do you feel about the word courage? I don't really identify as being courageous. It was what I had to do for my sanity. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, prior to that, I was a bit scared. But so from that point of view, it's about facing your fear, I suppose. Um, so I would say, yes, I face my fears, but I, I, and I guess some people would describe that as courage, but I don't think of myself that way. When you look at somebody like Georgie Stone, who is, you know, an icon now, and she in herself is, is somebody who is, is paving the way for a lot of uh, trans youth in Australia and around the world as well. When you look at somebody like her, do you feel like you've, you know, the, the impact, the changes that you instigated back in the early 90s are taking place and, and people are looking at you as an icon as well? I have a lot of time for Georgie Stone um, and she's taking a different approach to what a lot of people my generations would have taken. Um, in that, um, people of my generation, if they could disappear into society in their new gender, they did. And, you know, Georgie Stone is gorgeous, intelligent and articulate and she, she has chosen really for political reasons to try and make the world a better place for other people and I really, really appreciate that. 
and she and her family you know, went to the high court, which was pretty full on. And but they met you know through through the um, the Royal Children's Hospital Gender Clinic in Victoria, and and, and they got some really great changes initially in terms of you know making it much easier to get puberty blocking hormones and and later on to ha have medical people decide if cross hormones were, were important and i do see that that should be a medical thing it shouldn't be decided by courts and, and i think that was really amazing what, what they did there in terms of um the industry G georgie has some um, georgie pitched a story to neighbors which they said oh, okay we'll, we'll do this for a few weeks but that's all they guaranteed initially. But that, then, you know, the pop character was so popular, they decided to, you know, keep her as an ongoing character. And I'll be very curious to see if in the reboot she's back in. I haven't actually heard either way about that. I really hope she is. And, you know, and maybe she's just trying to, she's thinking that, you know, um, people like Kylie started off in um, in Neighbours and maybe you know, it's a really good stepping stone, particularly if it's being viewed, you know, across the world. I was fortunate enough to be able to interview Georgie last year for her Netflix uh, documentary, Dream Life of Georgie Stone, which is, you know, beautiful. And they're, they're wonderful companion pieces as well, because, you know, your story and her story, not only obviously the, the trans connection is there, but there is this connection of looking back at a life and looking back at the touchstones. And for Georgie, her parents documented her life growing up. Yeah. And so there is an archive there. And for you, yeah. you created an archive yourself of newspaper articles, of DVDs, of books. And this is a nice transition into talking about your archiving process. And I'm, I'm curious about, but I'm curious about your archiving process and how you went about cataloging what you had. I was a little bit surprised, you know, to be called an archivist, to be perfectly honest. Most of my friends have called me a hoarder. And I suppose, you know, maybe I could have pushed it and said I'm a collector. So I would say initially, I wasn't archiving. What I was doing was I was so desperate to figure out how to be myself in the world that I collected any newspaper article, um, any, you know, any DVD, any VHS of, of any story, or, or novels, magazines, biographies, uh, medical journals. I, I, I would, you know, maybe once every two or three months go and trawl through the, the medical library up at Melbourne Uni just to see if there's any more trans stories in the archives of sexual behaviour or something like that. But then originally I ended up with a big pile of stuff and it was just starting to drive me a little bit crazy. So I then but, well, how do I file all this? And some of it were academic and some were physical things like a DVD. And so gradually I, I worked out a system after the, after the fact, really, which was, and mostly I've filed by year, but on different topics. But because one of the things which clicked in my head very early is you can't learn, you can't figure out transgender unless you understand gender. I, I, I've probably got just as much material studying how a cis person is male or female, how they perform masculinity and femininity. Yeah, and in fact, you know, just to be totally nerdy about it, I got really carried away and did a PhD sort of on all these topics. Yeah, and it's got the really easy to remember title of A Feminist Post-Transsexual Autoethnography on Challenging Normative Gender Coercion. Um, I might, I might just point out it is pretty well written in plain English and, you know, it, it can get, it, it is up on the, the Deacon website. I did it in the School of Health in the, in the stream promoting social justice and equity because I was 
trying to make a difference for people's lives. So, I mean, this is going to sound possibly a little bit overly academic, but for me, there were three important questions. The first one is what strategies work for making trans people have more livable lives? The second one was because the exception proves the rule, what can trans tell us about gender itself? And the third one is what strategies do we need to enact to try and make the world a better place for trans people? And so you can see that those three formal research questions in my PhD were very much about the archive as well, because you know I was actually using material from the archive to answer some of those questions in the PhD. Where the other archives I I have is hundreds and hundreds of photos I took I took of myself. I was doing selfies, but but in the old-fashioned way where you had put a camera on a tripod and wind wind the winder then run to the other side of the room and go and pose. So, you know, from that point of view, I was ahead of my time. I was doing selfies back back in the 80s and 70s. What was that experience like for you as well? I mean, obviously back then you had to send them off to go and get developed. So knowing that you had the right shot and knowing how, you know, to pose and all this kind of stuff, what was that experience like? It's a very different experience to now looking on your phone because we, when you look on your phone and go, I don't like that one, delete, delete, delete. Yeah, because you know, you know, back in the olden days, you actually you know had to take the film into you know the chemist or, or to a lab, and and you know, get it you know developed and printed. Um, it took ages to get feedback, and and so you know I, I would suppose overshoot. You know, a typical roll of film had only thirty six shots on it um, in in the seventies and eighties, and so I would probably take five shots of each thing I was trying to test. And in a way, what I was trying to test was two things, really. One of them was testing looks to see if they worked. Um, I suppose I could have just looked in a mirror. But but the other bit for me was because in my head, the real me didn't seem to exist much in day-to-day life. I, ne- I needed photographic proof that the real me really existed. And in Accidental Archivist, they did actually show a few a few photographic sequences where I took a series of photos of myself. And yeah, like I said, part of it was, was in a way to prove the real female me existed. But, but part of it, part of me was also trying to fine tune my, my abilities in you know, hair, makeup, costume, photography, lighting. So it was all combined in a way. I, I, I've, I've now scanned about three or 4,000 photos um, so that then I do now have them in a digital form. Is there a plan for them in the future to do like an exhibition or anything like that, or mostly for your own personal records to know? No, uh, you yeah, know, um, I've been nego- I've been negotiating with a couple of people. Uh, we had a project that fell over to, to basically make a almost an animate, yeah. you know, using the using because there's so many photos, having uh, having my voice track which is then illustrated and animated by the photos. And some of them, because I was ta- I was taking six or seven photos in the one spot, if you actually go, if you do actually cut between them, it actually really just looks like a very slow animation. Nice. Well, that, I mean, hopefully that, that gets off the ground eventually. I'd love to see that. I'm testing a stage show as well. One of the, one of the strategies I suggested in my PhD was is, uh, was to turn my PhD into a cabaret because not enough people read my PhD, um, and typically only six people read a PhD. But I've had twenty one I had twenty one hundred downloads in the first couple of years. 
which is a lot, a lot of pictures in it as well. And to that extent, I you know because I in a way I come from you know, from television uh, and theatre is that you know I'm a visual person, so I did put a lot of photos in, in that PhD and in the Routledge published version of the PhD. So what I'm doing for Midsummer in the next couple of weeks is I'm doing a show called Mutton is the New Lamb. If I had have said it, it's really a potted version of my PhD. I don't think I'd get anybody coming along, but it's going to be very visual and there's some really bad, silly jokes. And you can see, like, there's some of my props. That's it. Those two things are models of testosterone. Hey, wonderful. <laughs> testosterone yeah. and estrogen, which I use um, in, in, in the show. It'll be splendid. Well, I hope it goes well and you manage to bring it west eventually. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Oh, I, great. <laughs> I'd definitely like to travel it. Um, and probably initially I'd take it into regional Victoria because I'm particularly interested in to see how uh, how country towns deal with this sort of thing. I want to talk about the emotionality of relinquishing the archive as well. There, I found it quite powerful at the end when, you know, part of it is you, you're letting it go. It's, it's such a huge part of your life. And I'm curious about having the trust of that moment that exists right yeah. then and going, here you go. <laughs> um, I did find it quite emotional trying to, you know, giving away part of my archive. I've, Currently, I've only given away probably less than five percent, but but you know I, I possibly also towards the end of the accidental archivist, I did probably do a little bit of overacting, uh, and I remember a conversation I had with Georgie where I said, "Why act when you when you can overact?" And she said, "Oh, well that's what we do on Neighbours. <laughs> that's our motto on Neighbours or something like that." She said, "I can't, I can't remember yeah. the verbatim what she said." It's emotional because. The archive is how I formed my identity to a large extent. It's because your positive, negative, left, right articles all have an impact. Like if I read a story about a trans person I don't like, or say, no, well, I don't want to be like them. I don't want, but I do want to be a little bit like that person. I want to be a, a, a lot like that person, but I'd, except for that. And so, in a way, I was using the archive to help define who I was, and that's why it's emotional. It's actually part of me how trans narratives were presented in the 70s and 80s now as you mentioned often either steeped in tragedy you know death murder suicide there's a whole bunch of really just awful representations of, of trans narratives there and that that does kind of answer that question in a sense of how you dealt with that on screen was it just a rejection of no what i'm seeing in psycho for example is not how i feel when I first saw Psycho and, and you know, and, and the um, one 20 years later, which is very um, Dressed to Kill, movies like Psycho and Dressed to Kill, where the, you know, psycho, trans person, goes around murdering people, you know, for, well, for a start, I didn't see that as a positive role model, you'll be pleased, um, and, but it, but it meant that I all then, I had to deal with discounting that as part of the trans narrative so very much and i do talk about this in my little stage show thing coming up is that very much up until the 90s nearly every trans character was a murderer was murdered or suicides there are a couple of more fun ones movies a bit like some like it hot as trans as trickster so that's probably the best you'd get up until the 90s now i remember thinking at the time when the crying game came out that wow, the person isn't portrayed as a trickster, that they're not murdered, they don't murder anybody and they don't suicide. 
but the potential you know, male love interest does vomit when he sees our 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 um, trans character naked. And and but I was just remembering thinking at the time, wow, this is a positive movie. And, and I would say that now, the fact that you know somebody vomits when they see you, that that. Um, but, but that was just so much better than being a murderer or murdered or suiciding <laughs> that that I took it for what it was. But that was already too late for me because I transitioned in 1990 and that, I think that came out in 92. Nowadays, obviously, representation is much better. Are there any films or TV shows that you've watched that go, I wish that I had that back then? Nothing springs to mind as to a particular individual film. I think it's just the huge volume of material now there's there's positive stories there's medium stories there's stories that will show you how not to live because in a way Shakespeare wrote Macbeth but you can't say that's a positive role model for how to get power in the workplace so you know so I think our literature has always used negative examples to be illustrative as illustrative as well yeah, and that's the thing is complexity uh, comes in all different shades. It can be positive, it can be negative, but it's it's also who's telling the stories as well. And that was one of the the joys of being able to hear your story through the accidental archivist was you're telling your story and how you came to you know being open with your transition and all this kind of stuff. It, it, I found it really powerful in, in the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Um, it was actually in the same session as Dream Life of Georgie Stone. And so you know, people thought that was really well curated. We had three you know, three shorts. I forget the name of the fourth, third one, sorry. Um, but, you know, people loved that contrast. And there were just different aspects of it. Most of Georgie's was leading up to, to surgery, whereas most of mine was, well, it was all over the place, really. The actual archive itself was, was um, you know, decades in the making. And, and, but, you know, I... But part of me just really loves the fact that, you know, I can now claim to be an archivist rather than a hoarder. <laughs> it is wonderful, isn't it? Like, it's a great term to own. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm envious of you, actually. I'm really envious. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was at the ABC and I was chatting to this woman who I knew was a trained archivist. And, and so I, I just ran the idea past her. I said, well, how do you feel about me being called an, an accidental archivist? And she said... Oh no! I just loved it. I thought, I thought, and she said, "You know, you know, you are archivist. You're not, you know, you don't have the university training like I do, but you, you, I don't have a problem with it all." I was just a little bit worried that she might have been worried that I was, you know, I was claiming to be an archivist when I hadn't had that right training. <laughs> but there's, but there's something about like that's the thing is that you know there are people who are out there collecting things that relate to their lives, whether it's you know they're in in you know, connection to their identity or their interests or whatever. And we amass these things over our yeah. lives and then it's how we treat them and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. what we, we call them and how we, uh, you know, support them and celebrate them. And uh, it was really comforting to see, you know, not just yourself, but there are other people like Noah, for example, who talk about the importance of having this, this wealth of history. I, I found it really powerful and, and, and brilliant and also a little bit cheeky as well, which I, I enjoyed too. So uh, thank you for sharing your story. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think, I, I think um, Tracy, um, Tracy, the director, was um, she had seen another piece where Noah and I were in the same session. I'm, I met Noah um, because he was writing. Noah had, a, has, had an ARC grant to write a trans history in Australia and, and I was interviewed 
And I, during that, I just mentioned that I had, you know, collected quite a few things. And he came around and was, wow, re- said he was really impressed with it. Um, I can tell you verbatim what he said, but I'm not sure you better use it on your show. He said, <laughs> oh, I'm not sure he'd like it, really you say it well. He said, your, your archive is a historian's wet dream. <laughs> and I went, well, I, I, I get... I get that you think it's, that means it's good. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, I can't quite think of a more polite way to put that at the moment. But anyway. No, that's perfect. That's okay. <laughs> and and I went, oh, okay. I didn't think it was that good. <laughs> but, uh, as I said, because most of my friends, including my trans friends, who didn't use that sort of methodology to try and work out who they were, uh, just you know, were calling me a hoarder for years. But, you know, uh, maybe it was a, I was a bit of a loner as well, I guess. And, and I guess in in that era, I didn't share being I was trans um, very much at all because it felt really unsafe to do so. And particularly, you know, when, you know, most people would then start to assume you're a murderer um, or, a, you know, you're going to be murdered or suicide. So, you know, it was um, something I didn't share at all. That's why I think I, I tried to find it. I guess it's a parasocial way through, through media, through any, any type of media I could find. Yeah. Well, Julie, thank you so much for your time. I've I've really enjoyed talking with you about your work and and um, you know obviously talking about the accidental archivist as well, which I'm I'm excited for people to get to see. Obviously, they can watch it um, through ABC, but I'm excited to for people to see it through Queer Screen as well because yeah, uh, it's a perfect venue for it. Yeah, when I saw Accidental Archivist up in Melbourne Queer Film Festival, I was just rapt to be able to sit in a room and get audience reaction. Because yeah. seeing it on television is quite different because uh, I watched it, you know, when it went to air the first time and I was by myself and I went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. What I liked was that I actually heard in the, in the audience in the thick cinema that, you know, people actually laughed at my jokes. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Get great fall savings on all your home care and entertaining needs during the fall home care event at Safeway. Head into Safeway and get deals on products like Clorox disinfecting wipes, Swiffer wet mopping cloths, Lysol all-purpose cleaner, Swiffer wet jet mopping pads, Mr. Clean multi-surface cleaner, or Lysol power toilet bowl cleaner. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local store for more details. Offers expire October 31st. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary.